0: Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie and this is episode 335, Acts of Spasmodic Violence. This show is ad-free due to member support, and as a way of thanking members for keeping the show independent, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. And you can get instant access to all the members' extras by signing up for membership at Podcast.com for about the price of a latte per month. And thank you very much to Pete, Jan, and Jillian for signing up already. Morcar and Sigafirth were under a lot of stress. These two noble brothers from the north had only just managed to join the wolf dynasty through Sigafirth's marriage to Elgith, the niece of the powerful elderman Alfhelm of York, and also of Wolfert's spot. And that really should have been a smart move, given how powerful that family was. But then Edric Streona caught the ear of the king. And in no time at all, the entire dynasty was under a full royal assault. And the wolf clan was suddenly having their land stripped away from them, being declared outlaws, and even Uncle Elfhelm ended up getting assassinated. It was a tough time to be descended from Wolfrun, or even associated with her. However, somehow, Morkar and Sigafirth survived. And perhaps that was due to their close relationship with the crown prince, Athelstan. But ultimately, the reason why isn't entirely clear. But somehow, they made it through the minefield of the early 1000s and came out the other end alive. And even better, King Athelred actually gave more carson land in 1009. So whatever bad blood was created during the purge of the wolf dynasty must have been dissipating. But then the Danes came to the shores of England. And they came with a massive army. And in no time at all, Swain Forkbeard became the new king of England. And we don't know what happened with Morcar and Sigafirth at that point. I mean, perhaps they fought alongside Athelred. Or maybe they stayed neutral, trying to stay alive by laying low. Or maybe they turned along with the rest of the north and sided with Forkbeard. We have no idea. They simply don't appear in the record. But if I had to guess, given that they were northern lords and the North sided with Forkbeard pretty much immediately, I suspect that they probably did too. But that's just a guess. But their situation got even more interesting when Forkbeard died. Given that he died only in a matter of months after he took the throne, he hadn't had time to fully solidify his rule, or secure the throne for his successor, or really secure much of anything for his nobles or supporters. And as a result, if you remember a message was sent to Athelred, who was living in exile. And in that message, the old Anglo-Saxon nobility said that the former king could return to the throne if, and only if, he governed better and forgave all the nobility for any treasons that they might have committed during the uprising. And I wonder where Morcar and Sigafirth were when that messenger was sent. Because that last part, the part about the forgiveness, would have been particularly important to the northern lords, who had hopped onto Forkbeard's bandwagon as soon as he showed up. I mean, let's be honest here, that would have set anyone off. But Athelred in particular was likely to have taken it right on the chin, because the Chronicles specifically spoke about how paranoid Athelred was. And they also mention that he was given to, quote, "...acts of spasmodic violence," end quote. So you can imagine that those northern lords would have wanted some sort of surety that all was forgiven. And luckily, Athelred seemed more interested in getting back the crown than he was with revenge. So all he asked for was a sensible agreement from the nobility to back him up and not to backstab. Which, if I'm being honest here, is a pretty good exchange. Especially since Forkbeard's young son, Canute was untested as a ruler and wasn't making any promises about justice or forgiveness. So it's entirely plausible here that the two brothers were on both sides of the issue, initially welcoming Forkbeard and then welcoming Athelred back. Which, if that was the case, it must have been pretty awkward. But at least they had a promise from the king. There would be no reprisals. And more than that, they had the crown prince as an ally, as he was a close friend of theirs. So he would be there to protect them, just in case Athelred decided to forget his vows. But then Prince Athelstan started to die. And I say start, because he managed to write a will, which gives us the impression that the crown prince knew that death was imminent, and that he had some time to prepare. Now this, of course, was horrible news for the crown prince. But it wasn't great news for Morcar and Sigafirth, either. Their position at court and their relative safety, appears to have been closely linked to their relationship with Athelstan. And without the prince, it all could vanish in an instant. Then, the inevitable happened. Prince Athelstan died. The brothers were in a dangerous position now. They were northern lords with links to the wolf clan, and now they were lacking the patronage of the crown prince. If King Athelred and his advisor, Streona decided that they were enemies, well, they could find themselves landless, or worse. So, the brothers were left with one hell of an incentive to shore up their relationship with the crown, not to mention the chief counselor, Streona. They needed to make sure that there were no hard feelings about that whole treason thing. The only trouble, though, was that the court was really busy, certainly too busy to patch up relations with a couple northern thanes. I mean, they had to clean up things after the foreign invasion, they had to deal with the death of the crown prince, and they even had to deal with Christmas. The king's schedule was absolutely packed. And so it wasn't until early 1015 that an invitation was sent to Thanes Morcar and Sigafirth. But when it was sent, their attendance was requested at Oxford. And Oxford was an interesting choice because it was one of the three towns which submitted willingly to Swain Forkbeard. So this selection of location could be read as an attempt of symbolically erasing the overthrow of 1014. So that was a good sign. So Morcar and Sigifer saddled their horses, probably gathered their retinues, and made the journey south to meet with the king. And when they arrived, they were met by the king's chief counselor, Elderman Edric Streona of Mercia. The king was nowhere to be found. In that moment, it no doubt became very clear that Athelred had no intention of keeping his vow of forgiveness. The brothers' luck had run out, and they were murdered by Edric Strayona. In the aftermath, King Athelred immediately and predictably seized the brothers' lands and ordered the arrest of Sigiforth's wife, Eldgith, and had her imprisoned in a convent at Malmesbury. Now not only was this unfortunate for poor Eldgif, the move also thoroughly stamped out any claims, dynastic or otherwise, that could be held by her family. And don't forget, that family was the Wolf Dynasty. Edric Streona was now just a hair's breadth away from eliminating the rival faction that served as a stumbling block for most of his life. There's just one small problem. Athelstan wasn't the only prince who had a problem with Edric Streona. Prince Edmund hadn't been in the spotlight, as he wasn't his father's favorite. But he did know enough of what had been happening to decide that he didn't like Edric. And while he wasn't the crown prince, he had been learning the ways of the English court. And from what we've seen already, Edmund was learning how his father operated. The last we heard of him, he was seizing prime real estate from a monastic community. But it is here that we see exactly how good of a student of courtly politics he had been. You see, the events at Oxford had thrown the kingdom into turmoil. Things with the north were already dangerously unstable. I mean, Edric Streona had made his name by murdering a northern elderman. And now, he just murdered two northern thanes, and the king was supporting his every action. And what more, he was now making it worse by seizing their lands and imprisoning the widow Eldgith at Malmesbury. A widow, you'll recall, who was also the niece of that murdered northern elderman, Elfhelm. This whole situation was a political mess. And as such, it presented Edmund with a rare opportunity to make a play for power. And you might be wondering why Edmund would need to make a play for power. After all, he was Athelred's eldest living son. So the power was his. He just had to wait for it to fall into his hands. Or did he? Well, I wouldn't be too sure. You see, Edmund wasn't the only son of Athelred who was still alive. He still had a younger full-blooded brother, but more importantly, he also had a half-brother, Edward. And Edward was now a teenager, meaning that he was fast approaching the age where he'd be old enough to rule, should the need arise. And he was already acting as his father's emissary, starting with the negotiations over his return to the throne in 1014. And if you're looking for hints as to who was more favored to take the crown, that wasn't a good sign. Then you have the fact that Edward's mother was Emma of Normandy, a consecrated queen of England. Edmund's mother, on the other hand, was Elf Gifu of York, someone who was decidedly not consecrated, which in the medieval mind meant that Edward had an argument that he had the greater right to the throne than Edmund. And then to add to this ticking dynastic time bomb, Edmund's mother was from the north. And if accounts of Athelred are to be trusted, the king was getting ever more paranoid. And the fact was that the north had sided with Forkbeard, And the king wasn't all that fond of the north anyways. I mean, he'd sanctioned the murders of at least three northern nobles. It's hard to see that as anything other than the king becoming increasingly antagonistic to the northerners. And Edmund was half-northerner. And then beneath all of this, there's also a subtext that you can see running through the charters. The entries indicate that Edmund was never Athelred's favorite. His place at court could be described as, at best, a bit wobbly. So it might be a bit of a stretch for Edmund to assume he was going to inherit the throne. I mean, for all we know, and for all he knew, his younger half-brother might have been lining up to leapfrog him. But then an opportunity to change everything presented itself. The king broke his vows. He had ordered his henchmen to murder the nobles that he'd sworn to forgive as a condition of his return to rule. And in response, the north was livid. Like way angrier than normal. Even more, in fact, than when Thatcher was the PM. And that was bad. It was made even worse by the fact that Northumbria was barely shired at this point. So from the Southern perspective, it was wild and woolly. And the only reason why Wessex was able to maintain any sort of grip on the region was because it had the support of the local nobility and the major religious figures of the region. So for Wessex, if you lose those nobles, you lose the North. And Athelred and Edric had just killed two thanes. Thanes, who were linked to the family of Elphelm, the northern eldermen who Athelred and Edric had also killed. It was almost like the crown was trying to antagonize the old Dane law, And it worked. And so Edmund seized the opportunity. He gathered his retinue, rode to Malmesbury, entered the convent, and brought out Sigifert's widow, Eldgith. Now, the records don't say exactly how this was done. We aren't told if force was used or whether it was a simple escape. I mean, maybe he just knocked on the door and the nuns were happy to be rid of her. We don't know. All we know is Edmund took her from the cloister and married her. Unfortunately, noblewomen during this period were typically just pawns in real estate deals that were being struck by the men in their lives. So her feelings about her imprisonment, release, and remarriage likely weren't on the minds of any of the men who were making these decisions for her. And it certainly wasn't on the minds of the scribes who were recording it all for history. But the fact was that what Edmund was doing here had very little to do with Gift's wants and desires for a relationship. What he was doing was flying a flag of open rebellion against his father. And he was also shoring up his position in the North and the Danelaw by linking himself to their recently murdered nobles and to the dynasty that had been hunted to the point of extermination by the king and his chief counselor. Next, Edmund and his new bride rode north, and took possession of the lands that the king had stolen from Morcar and Sigafirth. Then, just in case anyone missed what was happening here, the five boroughs proclaimed Edmund their lord, and fully broke away from Athelred and his murderous henchmen. And immediately thereafter we see Edmund issuing charters as Edmund Atheling Rex King Edmund the Atheling. The rebellion was on. But nothing occurs in a vacuum. And while Athelred and Edric were plotting murders, and while the king's eldest son was plotting a rebellion, to the north, in Denmark, Canute, Thorkell the Tall, Eric Lathier, and their Viking warriors were also plotting. Only one year earlier, Knut had come to Denmark hat in hand, but he quickly found a new project to keep himself busy. Knut had started forming alliances. And that wasn't an easy task, as it meant that he had to carefully navigate the maze of rival warlords that now made up the delicate kingdom of Denmark. But Knut was able to take advantage of this politically decentralized kingdom and the fact that Denmark had no standing army. Because what it meant... Was that if someone had enough political skill, there were plenty of warriors on hand just waiting for someone to give them something to do. So Canute met with leaders, and he flattered and made promises as needed, and did all the careful work of diplomacy necessary to forge himself an army. And helping him in this task were the famed warriors Eric Lathier and Thorkel the Tall. Eric could provide the steady leadership and the sound advice of a man who had spent decades preparing for campaigns just like this one. And as for Thorkell, well, Thorkell had been a mercenary working for Athelred, So not only did he understand England better than most of the Danes, he also understood their king. And I'm sure it probably also helped that he had a large number of Jomsvikings at his command. The invasion fleet was beginning to take shape and more Danish nobles came under Knut's banner. Which meant that gaining the attention of other nobles got easier. But it also came with a challenge. He would need to balance the egos of multiple violent warlords and keep their rivalries and feuds from boiling over and dissolving their fleet. You might imagine a Viking or prince like Knut would just demand the warriors follow him. But there's no way that that would have worked in Danish society. Knut needed to be a diplomat, And a peacekeeper. He needed to navigate the complex web of interpersonal rivalries that knitted Danish noble society together. And he needed to do it in a way that got them all rowing in the same direction. It was delicate and probably dangerous work. But by the summer of 1015, he completed his task. Thanks to his political chops, Canute was now at the head of a fleet containing thousands upon thousands of warriors. And some of those were the terrifying Vikings, who had already conquered England once before. The army that Canute had assembled was gargantuan. It even eclipsed the great heathen army. And on his command, the great fleet launched and began sailing towards England and conquest. Meanwhile, in England, you had Edric Strayona, a man that in many ways was Canute's complete opposite. He was a man who was a relative nobody who rocketed up to the highest levels of English power, but he'd done so not through diplomacy, but through treachery and deceit. And as a result of his methods, he had created some extraordinary enemies. Vast portions of Northumbria were now howling for his blood. And on top of that, he also had to contend with the fact that King Edmund of the Five Boroughs was married to the widow of a man he had murdered. And Prince Canute of Denmark was married to the daughter of another man he had murdered. And making matters worse, Northumbria, Edmund, and Canute all had armies. Then to top it off, his great benefactor, King Athelred, was now old and getting sickly. Edric was in deep shit. Then, ships were sighted off the coast of Sandwich. A lot of ships. Two hundred ships. And it's possible that he stopped here because he thought that Sandwich was going to be friendly shores. And that after briefly being ashore, he realized that actually, Sandwich had no interest in this Danish king. So he withdrew his forces and headed farther south. And by September of 1015, they were at Pool Harbor. And knowing that they were now definitely in enemy territory, the army came ashore and ravaged Dorset, Wiltshire, and Somerset. They burned, they pillaged, they looted. And all the while, King Athelred was laying sick at Cosham, on the Hampshire coast, which, if you know your geography, placed him dangerously close to the front lines of the war. And due to his ill health, the raising and organization of the army had to be left to his trusted advisors and general. But by this point in his reign, that had become an incredibly thin list. For example, the veteran Elderman Athelmar the Stout of the Western Shires, he was the son of old Elderman Athelweird the Chronicler, well, he had died of some unknown cause on this same year. And as for the rest of the leaders who guided the kingdom through the various trials back in the days of his mother's council, well, they were all long gone and buried. I guess he could still call in Elfridge of Hampshire, since, against all odds, he was still around and he would be available if you needed someone to fake sick on the front lines and abandon the fight. But I think that was probably more of a problem for Athelred rather than a solution. And so, with so few options present, it fell to Elderman Edric Strayona to organize the defense of King Athelred and the Southern Shires. And joining him was the king's son, Edmund, the same son who had declared himself king of the five boroughs. But you know, dad was in trouble, so what are you going to do? And the timing of this is actually incredible. Moments earlier, the king's son and the king's son-in-law were on the verge of dragging England into a bloody civil war. But then Canute arrived, and as a consequence, now they had a common enemy. And few things can heal rifts more quickly than a shared adversary. So as Edmund was raising the soldiers of the north to rescue his father and the kingdom, Edric Strayona was in Mercia, doing the same. Against all odds, Canute had provided the kingdom something that had eluded them for decades. A real chance for unity. So Edric Strayona positioned his army and waited for Edmund to join him. And when the northern army crested the hill and came into view, his heart must have sank. Edmund had an enormous army far too large for his mercy and forces to overwhelm. Well, come on. This was Edric Strayona. You didn't think he was going to work with Edmund, did you? No, he was planning on killing him, probably through some sort of assassination plot. But Edmund must have made quite the showing at this gathering because the Chronicle says that when Edric realized that his double cross wasn't going to work, he withdrew his forces, leaving Edmund and his northern army alone. But Edric wasn't done. He might have been bloodthirsty and deceitful, sure, but he still commanded a significant amount of loyalty from his underlings, and the king was still lying sick and in desperate need of him. So he took 40 ships and a full complement of warriors, and he marched on Canute's army. And there, he offered Canute his submission. Edric Strayona would be Canute's man now. And after four months of being ravaged by the Danes without any serious response, and after witnessing the full economic and military capacity of Mercia committing themselves to the untested Viking prince, well, the West Saxons had enough. So the nobles of Wessex gathered hostages, rounded up their horses, and handed them all over to Canute. And they too accepted him as their king. It was Christmas of 1015, and Canute held half of England. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at the British History Podcast at gmail dot com and you can find links to all our communities in the community section of the British History dot com. Thanks for listening.